0: Look, if the Fed if the Fed cuts a lot, uh, then I do think maybe you maybe you can avoid a downturn. Maybe it will be so mild that won't we'll only know after the fact we were in it. I just don't think that's likely.
1: Welcome to Wealthy. On I'm Eric Chemy. Recently we've had some conversations where a lot of people have been bullish. They don't see a hard landing ahead. They see so many strong positive indicators, but I'm not 100 percent convinced. And I feel like we need to get the other side of the story. So today we're talking to Joe Lavornia. Most notably, he spent a year serving in the White House as special assistant to President Trump and was chief economist of the National Economic Council. He spent decades as a Wall Street chief economist for Deutsche Bank, Natixis, and now currently at SMBC Nico Securities. You might hear some trading chatter in the background or people walking behind him. For more than a decade, he was also ranked as a top economist in the prestigious institutional investor all-star fixed income survey. So Joe, I know you believe that we're going to get a recession. The question is not if, but when and how hard it's going to be. Walk us through what you're seeing here
0: sure thank you eric and thanks for having me the uh so the couple of reasons why i think there's a recession maybe three reasons the first and foremost is the the index of leading indicators uh, peaked back in december of uh, 2021 and it's essentially fallen for 19 consecutive months and it's down eight percent year on year and in the past every time we've had that length of that length of decline and by the magnitude we're seeing we've always had recession. And that's been the case, even if we go back and look over the years to see the original series before they've been changed as this index has changed its methodology a bit, but it's always been reflective of recessions. That's number one. Number two, the yield curve. And I like to look at the two year to 10 year spread. That's always been my favorite because the two year note has expectations embedded in it of what the Fed will do. Uh, That interest rate differential twos to 10 year yields uh, last year or earlier this year, I should say, got to its uh, most inverted since the early 80s. In fact, if you adjusted for the level of interest rates, the inversion that was around 100, minus 100 100 basis points was actually bigger than the 200 plus inversion we had back in the early 80s when the funds rate was about three, four times as high. Uh, so that's that's number two. And number three, the Fed just has not had a very uh, good track record uh, and been able to raise rates. And basically slow the economy to the extent it needs to be slowed to get the inflation out of the system. In fact, this has been the most aggressive and rapid tightening cycle we've had since the early 80s. So those three reasons to me make—I won't say they make me a bit of a cynic, Eric—they just consistent with what history shows time and time again uh, that the probability of a soft landing is very, very low, and that a hard landing is much more likely. So
1: I keep hearing from the bulls that. Oh, but labor is so strong; you can't find enough workers. There's all these openings and not enough workers. That's going to keep the recession from happening. And then I've heard other people saying, "But wait, it's coming eventually. That domino is going to fall too." What, what do you see there?
0: So, if you ask, well, why is the recession taking so long to unfold? If you if you look at the leading indicators and how long it's taken in the past, because sometimes there've been some long lead times. You know, we're we're, probably, we're sort of at the very tail end of uh, of when you know the the index should be okay, come on, it should happen already. And I think part of the reason why we haven't had a recession is that COVID and the shutdown of the economy caused a lot of the traditional relationships uh, in the economy, the modeling, if you will, to break down. So for example, we saw back in 2021, very high job openings and a very high unemployment rate. That really doesn't make any sense. Normally, you'd have the opposite. You'd have low unemployment and high openings or or, or, or low openings and high unemployment rate. Instead, you had both at the same time, elevated unemployment and elevated job opening. So the economy is kind of normalizing, uh, and that's important. Um, The fact that you've had the labor market healthy, though, doesn't really tell us where we're going. The one indicator within the labor market that actually is predictive is the unemployment rate. And that now is up 50 basis points from its cyclical trough, which in the past, every time in the post-war period, has also signaled a peak in the economy. So it's taken us a while to get to where we are. But if you believe things are normalizing and some of these old relationships which have worked many de- you know for many decades if they reassert themselves as we believe is the case then uh, th- then you will get a hard landing
1: What about the idea that the Fed will need to cut next year because of the election? Do you think there's that much politics involved in, in how they play this out?
0: I, the, there are politics. I, so I believe the Fed will have to cut rates a lot just to normalize the yield curve. If you make some guesses on what you think the spread should be between the Fed funds and two-year note and two-year note to 10-year note, uh, I've estimated the Fed needs to cut 250 basis points to normalize the curve, where you'd have a situation where uh, the long rate has got a positive slope to the to short rates. Now it's possible that if the Fed cuts that aggressively, we can avoid a hard landing. The problem is that in the past, when you've had soft landings, the Fed's generally cutting about 75 basis points, not 250 basis points. Uh, So I do think the Fed has to cut a lot. Now politics, I do think, will enter into the equation, but only to the extent if the Fed hasn't moved and we're bumping up closer to the election. So for example, if we're sitting here and we're still debating about the strength of the labor market and the extent that inflation's going to moderate, and it's September of next year, to me, politically, that's going to be very difficult for the Fed's first move to, to come early, in, uh, late in the year, rather. It's more likely that if they, they would cut sooner, because if it looks like the data warrant it, and part of this is going to be a data issue, then by going sooner, then they could sort of be above the political fray. But if it's, if it's at the last minute, uh, it'll be a problem. And I'm sure, unfortunately, both sides are going to be arguing uh, that the Fed's making a mistake. They're either cutting too soon, uh, too much, or they're waiting too long to move. So either party is going to be pretty upset with the Fed if my forecast is correct.
1: What was your perspective like working in the White House, you know, National Economic Council? You're probably dealing with the Fed or working like if you were Jerome Powell, what would you be doing differently right now if you were in charge? Um,
0: well, the, I, I would. Uh, I liked uh, Alan Greenspan sort of a non-transparent view, which is sort of a funny thing to say because people always think transparency is the best thing. But I learned way back when that you sort of want to talk to. Uh, to the market as if it's a you know a, a teenager you know a smart teenager you know doesn't have a lot of attention span uh, mood changes can move mood changes can happen quite quite frequently um, and you want to, you want flexibility and optionality and the problem with the Fed giving all these forecasts giving all the data uh, making predictions doing things like forward guidance is that it's responsible for things which it can neither control meaning the economy Fed monetary policy is a very blunt instrument nor can it forecast the economy. And I'd argue that Fed's forecasts are, are worse than the consensus, because how the institutionally the organization is set up, you've got uh, five governors, uh, seven bank presidents that voted at times, it's 12 people voting, you've got 19 people on the committee, you uh, include all the non-voters, and it takes a while to get to make decisions. And the degree of uh, consensus uh, on the Fed is extraordinary because economists are known not to agree on many things. And yet the Fed always has these votes that are generally unanimous. So I would do things totally different. But the problem is we've moved so far, Eric, away from how I would do things that we're never going to go back and that transparency is going to persist. And I do think that will make the Fed, and I've, I've said this many years well before I was in D.C. at the pleasure of serving for the president. But uh, I've always made the point the Fed is opening itself up to a political, uh, Interference, because it's again, it's accountable for things which you can neither predict nor control.
1: The I like I like the way you put that. It- it can't forecast well, and it's not responsible for it either, right? So it's... It's, it's partially out of responsible. Yeah, it,
0: it, it's partially responsible, but you know, the old adage was monetary policy was a very blunt tool. And even Chairman Bernanke had mentioned that you know QE doesn't work in theory, but it works in practice. So it shows you that there are a lot of, of funny things about monetary policy, that it's not, this isn't physics. It's not engineering. It's not like, okay, we're going to build the bridge, and if it stays, you know, the, the, the math is supposed to suggest it's going to hold. Uh, economics isn't math. It's a social science science. Uh, and that means it gets a lot of things wrong. and People need to be adaptive and need to learn. And unfortunately, I think uh, economics has become too mathy. It tries to be too precise. There's this whole joke about why economists forecast at the decimal place, Eric, is because they have a sense of humor. And uh, I, so when I see these Fed uh, reports, and they're very deep and detailed and have distributions of risks to the forecast and where it's skewed, I just think it's sort of silly. Uh, we just simply don't know. And it's okay not to know. Uh, But uh, nobody wants to be humble anymore. I think the economics profession needs needs a lot more humility.
1: It reminds me of in college studying economics and the idea that you go through all these complicated equations that you need a PhD in order to figure out. Like you need a PhD in math to figure out these economic equations. And the idea is this is what the equations say about normal people's behavior right? That normal people take 300 million Americans, none of whom have a PhD in math, but this is their behavior, but we need a complicated equation to solve it. But it means that the people who have this behavior, they're not optimizing their life around these equations. They're not thinking through these equations. They're just doing what they do every day. So why do we need these equations when the people who are making these decisions themselves are not powered by these equations and don't have the training to make decisions along those lines
0: yeah people i mean people would they they may inherently want to optimize but we know people do irrational things all the time and do things that aren't good for them now the argument might be in aggregate you know the so all these things kind of cancel out but to me psychology is very important and you know all these models they they're good in terms of giving you a general structure of how you might want to describe how the economy works but all these models are only as good as the assumptions that underlie them. And then of course, when you have shocks to the system, like you had uh, with the financial crisis in 08, uh, and again with the pandemic in the aftermath of that, we need to, again, realize that the standard errors or the confidence intervals around these, these statistically significant predictors that have worked so well in the past are wide. You have fat tails. And uh, it, it, it would be good to acknowledge that. Moreover, the other issue which I, bring up time and time again when I talk to clients and when I can on in the media is talk about the data. The data is not particularly good. It never has been good and arguably it's gotten better. The response rates on things like the employment survey or the job openings and labor market survey, those, those response rates have come down significantly over the past handful of years. So that means that not only making decisions based potentially on flawed models, the data we have isn't particularly good and itself can be biased. And I think that's what's happening now where the economy doesn't look as healthy uh, as the data suggests. We're seeing employment, for example, Eric, has been revised down eight of the last nine months. We're seeing a gap between the household and employment data of roughly two million jobs. Uh, And yet we're making these decisions, and yet the data isn't particularly good, and arguably it's gotten worse.
1: Do your clients love hearing how bearish you are? I don't. Yeah,
0: I, it's it's not that I'm bearish. I I feel like I've I I mean I'm I'm not bearish, although I'm bearish now. But I, I look, I've got a a view of the world, and certain every model eventually breaks down. But. Uh, I mentioned the index leading indicators. I mentioned the yield curve. I mentioned how fast the feds raise rates. Um, if you look at senior loan officer surveys, another leading indicator, how that's tightening. So you've got a very high price of credit at the same time that the availability of credit is declining. It just kind of makes you negative. Uh, so, But I, that's, not, that's not always the case. I remember being accused of being bullish coming out of the, the financial crisis, having been very negative in 06 and 07, and then being bullish in 09. and. People thinking I was crazy. So you're kind of used to it. I look if the Fed if the Fed cuts a lot, uh, then I do think maybe you maybe you can avoid a downturn. Maybe it'll be so mild that won't. We'll only know after the fact we were in it. I just don't think that's likely. And I do believe in the wisdom of crowds. So when I see that yield curve inverted, it's telling me that when your short fi- when your short term rate your financing rate is above what you could lend at, meaning because you're, you're funding short and lending long, that in and of itself should dry up credit. And what we're seeing now, of course, is the market for private credit explode. Money's moving away from banks and it's going to another part of the, of, the, of the financial system where it's unregulated, where there's no transparency, and that in and of itself could cause its own issues. So I don't, I don't think I think I'm bearish now, but trust me, at some point, you know, when the fundamentals warrant it, Eric, I'll become massively bullish. I'm
1: curious. What are you looking for? What will change your mind? And then and, you know, maybe we'll save the question for, for a second. I'm going to talk about the current situation, right? The current situation now, yeah. we've seen the S&P 500. Have that sort of fall of the first half of this year, come all the way back, come back down again, and then rally all the way back. We know that's just seven stocks, right? But as a general index, that's what's happening. A lot of people will say, look, we've already seen the downturn. We already saw it drop 10%. That was yeah. the 10% drop. On, Couple times and now it's back up. That right. was the move. Are you confident that that was the move, or do you see a 25% yeah. drop here coming up? Well, where do you see so this? If so,
0: here's going? what I so you earlier you asked about, you know, hard landing, what's the probability right. of recession? I, I would say that look, the likelihood of recession is still quite high given the factors that I mentioned. But whether it's a deep recession,
1: what does likely high mean? What number is that?
0: Seventy-five, eighty okay. percent uh, Okay. I mean, a I mean it's like if you were you, you if you're at Vegas or you're making a bet you would have a reasonably high degree of confidence that you'd be right of course there's always a risk you could be wrong but 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 I'd say 75 80%. Uh, and that's come down a little bit because the longer uh the economy goes without a downturn the more likely some of these excesses could gradually be could be unwound. Um so anyway so uh, the reason I've, I I I'm about the equity market why I Think the equity market could go lower or oh, Russia, coming back to the other point about the depth is that we don't about recessions is we don't know what recessions look like or how deep they are because we're not sure what the policy response is when we're in it so for example if we look back at 08 and you look at the data we had gdp data payroll data it was a milder recession up to september of 08 than what we had seen in 01 and then what happened Lehman failed and the Congress didn't pass TARP one, which is a Troubled Asset Relief Program. And then, of course, the economy collapsed later that month. And from October through April of the following year, and recovered uh, when the Treasury had to pass the banks on the stress test. So it was extraordinarily mild downturn. Got worse. Take the pandemic. The pandemic was a collapse in output that you hadn't really seen really ever uh, over a six-week period. Uh, the administration gave income support. The economy started to reopen and it, May and you had a sharp V-shaped recovery, which by the time I was argued, I was too bullish. Uh, my my colleague and, and uh, boss Larry Cudlow we were arguing about you know you've talked about an I-shaped recovery, uh, so that was V-shaped recovery. Uh, But so what was the policy response? if we get a situation next year, let's say where it's not clear what the economy's doing and the Fed waits and holds off, it's worried about inflation picking back up like it did in the 70s, which we could talk about because I don't think there's, I think the parallel, the better parallel is the 40s. And the Fed waits, well, it can make a situation much worse. And if there's divided government come in 25 and there can't be a fiscal response, in response to a weaker economy, then you could easily have a mild situation get much worse. So I think there's a hard landing, but we don't know what it'll look like because we don't know what the policy response is whenever it happens. Uh, so I think that's very important. Regarding stocks, the issue I have with equities, and I, you know, we had about a 23, 24% correction from the September, rather the January 22 highs to the October 22 lows, uh, is that you market. if we have a recession next year, the equity market didn't make its, its it's bottom in October of last year. The equity market doesn't lead by that much. Now it's possible you could argue that, okay, uh, given that the, the fact that you've had a time to absorb some of these excesses, commercial real estate has been in a funk for a while, residential investment spending's been slowing, manufacturing's been weak, we're working inventories off, it won't be a, da- a big downturn. It's hard for me to think that a 10% correction, it would be enough. So I think you could easily make a fundamental story where you could get a roughly 20% drop from here Uh, if there is a recession. If it's really mild, maybe it's slightly less, but I do think you could see clearly well sub 4,000 on S&P 500. And against that backdrop, Eric, you'd see a big rally in duration with 10-year yields moving down well below 4%, close to 3%. And that's typically what causes these equity markets to then recover and very powerfully and sustainably when the equity risk premium becomes positive, not negative, as it is now, and bonds become so expensive that people naturally want to allocate back into stocks. But we're not there yet.
1: I feel like this has been an argument a lot of people have had, let's say, all year, right? There's been a consensus from a lot of economists that we're going to see this soft landing, but we're wrapping up 2023, and, and basically, they've been proven wrong so far. So what's going to make 2024 different? Because I, I think, intellectually, everything you're saying makes sense. It's like what you said about QE, it doesn't work in theory, but it works in practice. I feel like the bull's argument doesn't work in theory, but it has been working in practice so sure. far. What's going to change next year?
0: Part of the thing is saying, okay, well, why, is, why haven't you had a recession? I mean, there's the normal right. lags. I mentioned these indicators. Some as some it just takes time. Uh, number one, and maybe most important is that when SVB failed back in March, the Fed provided $400 billion dollars. $400 billion, that's a huge number, in liquidity immediately. And it had drawn from the financial crisis and, of course, the COVID playbook and moved with such alacrity that you've got to give Jay Powell and the Fed uh, Fed folks credit. Of course, you could argue that monetary policy was the cause of the regional bank crisis because because of forward guidance and people not believing that Fed would raise rates as much as it said it would, even when they began raising rates in March 22. A lot of banks and institutions got long treasury duration and, of course, have massive realized and unrealized losses because of that. But leaving that aside, the Fed did react quickly and it stabilized something. We would be in recession now if not for that uh, quick move that provided all that liquidity, number one. Number two, we have had a lot of government spending, more so than many people thought this year. In fact, I made the calculation that if you took the pre-COVID trend, we we spent an additional 3.2 trillion from January of 21 to present. Uh, and that accounted for a lot of the aggregate demand boost that offset tighter money that households are paying. Uh, however, in the last couple of months, what you've seen is the rate of government spending slow, slow quite dramatically. So that that's unlikely, in my opinion, to repeat next year. And then, of course, I mentioned earlier that you know, it takes a while for the economy to normalize following the pandemic. And I mentioned the the labor market, labor market you know, being strong, but being unusually weird in 21 and even early 22 with a high unemployment rate and high job openings rate. But here we are now with the unemployment rate rising, continuing claims higher. Uh, we're seeing household employment, which tends to be more reflective of what's happening at turning points in the payroll data, weaken. So I think the contours of the, of the slowing are still very much present. And it does feel a little bit like 08 when we got to 08, Eric. And why have we had a recession? The Fed cut rates a lot, and we're not going to have one, and 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 we wound up having one. So they think there are some similarities there.
1: I look at some other other forecasts. Like Goldman's been bullish all year. Dean Mackey at point seventy-two, one of the best on the street. They've been bullish. What are they missing though? If you were sitting in a room with them, what would you say in terms of okay, I understand these points, but you're missing X.
0: Honestly, I don't know. I, don't, I sort of make it intentionally, I don't try to talk to anybody. So if to not be, not be biased, of course, then I, you have to fight against your own confirmation bias. I just have a structure of, of how the economy works. It's sort of like, you have to kind of have a view of how the economy works. You have to have a view of how monetary policy works, how fiscal policy works. And then of course, what we debate about is where are we in the business cycle? And I think we could agree on the first three phenomenon, but we may not agree on where we are in the cycle. And it seems to me that the data suggests that we're much, much later cycle, but why they have their views, Eric, I don't know. Maybe that's a, maybe we should have a debate and see.
1: yeah, we we should have a debate. Somebody was talking to me the other day about, oh, well, it's the baby boomers. They're all retiring. This is different from 30 years ago because they're out of the workforce now. They're, they're retiring every day. There are not enough people to replace them. So. That means unemployment will be very low and anyone who wants a job will be able to get a job, a.k.a. this time is different. What do you think about that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I don't believe in this time is different. I mean, history rhymes, right? It doesn't repeat. Um, I mean, it seems to me one of the stories why you know that some of maybe my uh, counterparts elsewhere might argue is that your financial conditions are easing. You're seeing interest rates decline and the equity market rally, and and I I if, I think that's a common argument, the consensus. I think that's wrong for the following reasons: is that you shouldn't look at financial conditions for investors. We should look at financial conditions for U.S. households. So if you look at the weighted average cost of borrowing for households, you include mortgage rates and credit cards, auto loans and personal loans. What you see is that borrowing costs are at a multi-decade high at the same time that banks are, are, are becoming less are providing less credit. Now, some credit's coming from elsewhere, uh, but in general, uh, we're seeing very, very high borrowing costs. We also know when we look at the consumer, that uh, consumer durable spending is way above its pre-COVID trend. There's been no payback there. Uh, I feel like we've satiated a lot of that demand and that this tightening financial conditions for 70% of the economy, which is the U.S. consumer, is tight. And therefore, it's just a matter of time uh, before you start to see the slowing. And again, the part of the reason why it's hard to predict these things, I mentioned data, I mentioned how the economy operates, how the Fed behaves and where we are in the cycle. Uh, recessions are very hard to predict. Economists aren't good at it. Uh, and we've been through this before. And, uh, and therefore, there isn't a simple timeline or roadmap we could follow. You know, what would change to make me more, more uh, bullish? I, I need to see the yield curve normalize. I, I just cannot believe in a capitalist-based system that that short rate could stay perpetually above the long rate without uh, causing dislocations or not causing the Fed to ease massively. So I have one variable or one assumption that I would be wrong on or I need to see change to be that curve. If the 10-year note went to 6% and the Fed funds rate stayed where it is and the 2-year note was at was at uh, 5.50. Uh, that kind of makes more sense. But of course, the problem there is if rates went up that high, the applied term premium would be so much that the tightening in markets would be even greater. Mortgage rates wouldn't be up at 7%. They'd be at like 9%. So I guess the way I see the world, it's hard for me to, the model I use, the foundation, it's hard for me to change it in a way that would allow me to quickly switch, which which is not what I think I'm supposed to. I'm not a trader. I'm not a strategist. I'm supposed to have just a solid, fundamental core underpinning and it served me well for a long time and i'm hesitant to abandon that approach yet
1: yeah you got to stick with your view for a while you can't just change it every week uh if the fed does cut rates but doesn't that suggest they're cutting rates because there's a recession right that or or, if they cut but they're only going to cut if something bad happens
0: well here's the thing so so one of the things i have been very uh i believe that inflation was largely transitory uh to me the episode that's more applicable to today isn't the 70s but rather the 40s when you had a similar dynamic unfold where you had a huge increase in aggregate demand while aggregate supply shifted to the left in other words the labor force shrunk effectively because people were at war and it was a little bit like how what happened during the pandemic where people were shut in and the government spent trillions of dollars not unlike what happened during world war ii and we saw inflation back then go up to almost 20 percent and then within a couple of years it collapsed and actually went negative so I think to me, that is probably the better better analog. Uh, so if inflation comes down, and as that real funds rate gets bigger and bigger, maybe the Fed just cuts and cuts a lot. And that's how we don't have recession. And maybe that helps stabilize equity so they don't maybe correct as much. I guess that would be one of the w- w- ways I could be wrong. But the problem is the people who have the soft landing don't have as much cutting as i believe necessary so as to avoid the very thing that they're not predicting
1: did you mentioned transitory inflation i, I want to catch did you say you believed it was transitory or you did yeah i believe
0: no i believe it i believe it was transitory i'll give you for instance uh the inflation rate peaked at nine percent in june of 22. Uh, that was right. the same month the fed raised the funds rate 75 basis points so right. it's a one seventy-five. Literally, the when the inflation peaked, effectively the same month, the funds rate was at one percent. Never before have we ever had inflation. Pe- the Fed is the Fed was done hiking in July, which I believe they are. Uh, we have never had a period, Eric, where the inflation rate peaked thirteen months before the peak in the Fed funds rate. Only right. a couple of times has has inflation peaked before the Fed funds rate happened three times: fifty-seven, uh, fifty-seven, eighty-four. And uh, 18, and the average lead time was only five months. This is 13 months. So what that means is, with monetary policy given those longer variable lags and as that real rates continue to rise, the Fed is going to need to cut. So maybe they cut their insurance cuts, and that's why you don't have the soft landing. But it has to be more than 100 basis points of easing that's baked into the market. The market has 100 basis points of cuts next year. Uh, I think that's not enough. I just said I just see the Fed not cutting when they should. A risking a much deeper downturn in 25 and maybe because the election gets in the way uh, or they wind up cutting a lot and it happens a lot sooner and the spark would at this point likely be you know further rising unemployment but also you need you, you would need negative payrolls you'd need negative jobs they won't cut rates even though inflation's come down a lot they won't cut rates with inflation still well above two what do you
1: think was the biggest blunder by mainstream economists in recent years because i look back about the massive stimulus programs that we saw a couple of years ago, should someone have stood up and say well, this is going to cause inflation, right? Did you know the idea of was it transitory or not, were the massive stimulus programs appropriate? Did anyone correctly analyze the V shaped rebound? So you know, we were also talking about the Great Depression 2.0, but that didn't happen. Does it feel like we had a massive miss in the industry?
0: I think, you know, unfortunately. Yeah, we we've broken down Eric into tribes, and you know, you've got conservative leaning economists and liberal leaning economists, and we each go to go down their own path. I don't. I like to say, as a street practitioner, I sort of am forced to like, to the extent maybe other people can't, but don't be as biased. I need to be correct. I need to have a good thought process. Uh, so uh, some people did foresee the, inf- the the inflation to us, and back in in twenty two, to his credit, Larry Summers did, and. Argued about it and kind of got iced out by, by, uh, by the administration. But I'd say the answer I, your question: the tribe
1: eats you alive if you go against yeah. them, right?
0: Yeah, but I, so, but, but the answer, to give an answer to your question, that's non-political because I want to be as unbiased as I can and be objective. Uh, I'd say probably the assumption that home prices couldn't couldn't decline back in the early two thousands, and I never believed that. Um, and a part I would show people, if I showed you a chart of a price and you saw these exponential increase in price, it didn't matter what it was and you sort of started to see things weaken, you know, the the chartist or technical analyst in me would say, I think that thing could correct, right? Whatever could go up 20% certainly could come down. And we made the assumption because it had never happened before that it wouldn't happen. And too many economists, um, too many economists fell for that. I also think that economists oftentimes don't look at... um, at market price signals in psychology. And again, they probably they focus more on these these big macro models of how the world is supposed to work, when in reality they do they'd be better off talking to people in business and industry and thinking, and what are they thinking? What are they saying? Um and I don't think we do that enough. There was a good book uh written by I think it was Christopher Leonard called The Lords of Easy Money, and there was a what Tom Honig was dissenting, he didn't want to continue to do quantitative easing. Uh Brian Bernanke challenged him, like, what model do you have? And his point was, I'm actually talking to people in the real world. And I think too often, so I saying, economics needs humility. Uh, too many people just have a disdain for the common person or the person that doesn't have a PhD or isn't math and doesn't speak in a language that basically insulates them. So, I mean, this language that economists use is just a barrier to entry to keep wages high. Uh, and I think we need more proof in the pudding. You know, what's your thought process? How good is your forecast? How often do people want to listen to you? And I think economists continually make make those mistakes, a very insular group, and generally just hang around themselves and debate themselves. Uh, I read something a long time ago that said that the economics profession, I can't find where I saw it, but the economics profession was like one of the worst disciplines in terms of like uh, quoting or borrowing from other other disciplines meaning like historians would take from political scientists and sociologists and economists but economists wouldn't draw from other other academic research uh, places and i think that's my own experiences personally and that's the case so we'll say
1: i'll ask a crazy question I mean it's, it's it doesn't matter it's too late if we had just done nothing for COVID, no shutdown no stimulus as, as i talked to a lot of normal people everyone says everyone got COVID anyway right we lost yeah. so many lives anyway but at least we could have avoided all the economic and financial problems, the massive debt, the massive inflation, the hard landing that's coming, the uncertainty. If they had just literally done nothing, said, everyone put on a mask, go back to work. Whatever's gonna happen is gonna happen, but we're not gonna waste trillions of dollars. Would that have been a better call?
0: Here's what I would say to you. I remember back during the housing crisis, there were too many people that lost their home. Right. There, was much, there was too much loss, disruption, Yes, I get the moral hazard issue. But, um, you know, again, economists, you know, coming back, uh, you know, we don't operate in a vacuum. Uh, You're talking real lives, people, politics do matter. And you have to be sensitive to that. I mean, even Sweden that had tried that harsh approach, they definitely had a softer touch than many other countries, but they certainly weren't hands off. And, you know, hindsight is great, but We don't have it in real time. So I do think that there has to be a a political response uh, or political consideration when you're dealing with people. So um, I I guess that's how I would answer it. I mean, and hopefully, you know, we've learned from what happened and we'll take a a more targeted, thoughtful approach. But this is why I also believe, Eric, we need more more debate. We need more disagreement. Disagreement is healthy. Let's not make things personal. Uh, We make things oftentimes too personal. Let's debate the policy. Uh, because uh, we need good policy, and I want to be able to persuade people that that my policy is better, and if it's not, I I want to be in a position where if I'm not attacked, then I could be persuaded, and we'd we'd be better off for it.
1: You had a front seat, like you mentioned, working with Larry Kudlow, with President Trump. How has that informed your views on the current economy and the process for how these decisions are being made?
0: what what's interesting is that the um you know government moves very slowly and uh it doesn't matter what your political uh framework is it just it moves very slowly so a lot of inertia you got to chip away and make little little tiny uh tiny uh changes um it's interesting because when you do something totally different, the vernacular, the language is totally different. So it takes a while to get used to how people operate and think. And it's interesting how, how Washington folks look at Wall Street and finance and how the finance people look at Washington and Wall Street. It's like almost each look at it as two totally separate worlds. So I, I found it very interesting and fascinating. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of my time was spent during the pandemic, so a lot of work became COVID-related. And Trying to get the economy back and and looking at data and seeing you know how the economy was improving, um, but I thought it was always important to be accessible, to be honest, uh, uh, do what you say you know say what you mean and mean what you say and and get things done on time. Um, I found that in D.C. people you know it's it's, pol- it's politics, so it's a it's definitely a different world, but it but it was fascinating. So I I I, I enjoyed my time. I, when I read about D.C. now, I have a little different sort of like when you're in college, you're taking econ or poly psych class and you kind of have a good foundation. So you kind of really could read between the lines and kind of know what's going on. But unfortunately, Eric, all the good stuff we'd have to keep offline.
1: <laughs> we'll do that after we hit record. Would you go back if Trump wins again and, and they said, hey, come back, do a job here. Would you do that again?
0: Maybe. I mean, I really like where I'm at and, um, and I enjoy it and I don't know. I'd have to, you know, I'd, I'd have to wait and see, see where we are when we get, that potential point in time a a year is a long way away and uh, the answer is i don't know
1: you don't know what should investors do someone's listening to this watching and thinking okay they believe your story do they do they get out of the market do they move into t-bills do they just sit on bonds what should they do for the next 12 months
0: jeremy grantham uh you might say some people call him a well-noted bear he made an interesting point made it a few many times but um he runs gmo big asset manager out of Boston. And um, he said publicly, look, he goes, I'm negative, but you have to be in the market because you don't have a business if you're not in the market. You can't be in T-bills or gold or some other asset you think is safe. Uh, you have to have some exposure to the market. But that exposure, though, Eric, really depends on the person, uh, how old they are, what their risk tolerances are. Certainly fixed income has provides a very attractive return that it hasn't provided in 15 years. So that's an asset class people want to look at. When you could buy a uh, a six-year uh, investment grade, uh, sorry, a a, um, a 6% yield on investment grade corporate paper, that's a very attractive return. So, I mean, I'm going to sound like an economist now, but it really depends. It really depends on numerous things, especially the person. So you can't give a one-size-fits-all approach. I will say that the one advantage that financial advisors have is that uh, is that they uh, or, or or some consignal area, if you if you will, um, is that uh, they help you take the emotion out, and that's very hard. Everybody can get emotional when it's their own money, so I think that's what you really want to work against, and that's where you want to be careful. That's why people who either dollar cost average or certain, have a certain set of asset allocation and kind of don't make the decision making on a whim generally do better. So I think I kind of gave you an answer, but I'm hesitant to be specific because all cases are different.
1: But let's say someone's got a ten-year horizon, right? Let's say they're in their 40s, so they are still going to be working. They don't need it for retirement. They they just want to maximize, you know, return versus risk. So so it's it's we don't have this time limit on the end. If you if you had that perspective on it, what would you say then?
0: You very seldom find periods where equities don't outperform bonds over a 10-year period. So you certainly want some equity exposure, but I'm not sure you'd want to be all in in stocks as maybe you might've been in 2009 when you looked at the trailing 10-year return on stocks had been negative and generally guaranteed, guaranteed with quotes around it, that the market would recover quite sharply or the 10-year forward returns would look good. But a lot will depend on inflation and where interest rates go but i would say again you need exposure the old rule of thumb was 100 less your age uh, would be your equity allocation so if you're 30 years old you should have at least 70 percent of your money in equities diversified equity funds and 30 percent in fixed income or some other combination of fixed income and perhaps alternative so uh i've always sort of used that as a benchmark but uh again it depends sort of what your goals are if you want to take risk people are going to be more aggressive but as you know Risk and return—you can't—they're inseparable. More risk, higher return; vice versa.
1: uh, I appreciate that. I'll I'll try to pin you down on this last version of the question. If you've got, let's say, you want a small amount in the lottery—you want a hundred thousand, you want a million—not the mega hundred million—but you got the little—you got four out of five balls right, so you get a hundred thousand or a million. Would you be buying S and P five hundred here at almost all-time highs, or would you say leave it in? some bonds, corporate or treasuries, wait six to 12 months and then pick it up. Do you think S&P is going to be lower 12 months from now? You could buy better then.
0: I will put some money in the stock market. Well, first, here's what I would, the first thing is I pay down debt because, yeah. um, again, the paying interest rate is debt, the liability doesn't change. So I would pay down debt, number one. And number two, yes, I would put some money in the stock market. Yes, because again, you don't know, you've got to, you know, even though i could tell you a 75 80% chance that the economy is going to go into recession and that would imply the equity market being lower but you know maybe it's it it's down 20% in the first 6 months and then it's up 30% after that so 12 months forward your equities are a little bit higher than where we are now. So being invested also is a hedge in case you're wrong. So this notion that you should not be in the market uh, because you're going to be able to time it in both sides, I think is extraordinarily difficult. Very few investors could do that. So you definitely want exposure in stocks and it has to be based on your risk parameters. Now, if I won the lottery, maybe I'd put more money in stocks because I'd be looking at it as house funds. It's basically money I wasn't expecting to get that I'll put majority of it in the equity market versus if it's, more hard earned on labor, maybe I'm a little bit more risk averse with that money. Um now behavioral psychologists may tell you that behavioral economists may tell you that's that's irrational, but then that comes back to our irrationality of of, of people. We do think sometimes it don't always make sense, maybe only to ourselves.
1: Yeah. No, no, you're so right then we'd have to have a whole other conversation yeah about yeah. that Joe, where where can people find you? Uh, Is it social media? Is there a newsletter? I know you're on Twitter. If everyone wants to dig deep with Joe, where can they do that?
0: I, you know, thank you, Eric. I I don't, yeah, I don't, I'm on social media a little bit. I I don't, I don't tend to go on a lot. I feel like it's uh, the risks uh, outweigh the rewards. I try to be very neutral, but I would say if you could, uh, you could Google me. And if, uh, if you're a client, um, I'm at uh, joseph.lavornia, L-A-V-O-R-G-N-A, at S M B C nico N I K K O all one word dash s i dot com and, uh, and I could put you on my uh, on my research mailing list that's probably be the best way to get me.
1: That's a long email address.
0: I did Joseph at S M B C nico dash s i dot com. I know. You everything. You got it's dashes,
1: a- dots, first, class <laughs> a, <nickname>. lot. <laughs> a lot. Though.
0: I got a lot there, Eric. You're absolutely right. They got to get you
1: like a little short one, right? Like just like you know, Joe. It's something a little nickname version of it.
0: Yeah, I, yeah, I know. I need. Yeah, I got Bob I'm gonna to talk to my boss about that.
1: This has been great, Joe. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Eric.
1: For people listening, and we're just talking about consigliere's financial advisors. If you're hearing all this, you're trying to figure out what to do. You can go to WealthyOn.com. There's a little short form there. We can connect you with investment professionals that WealthyOn endorses. There's no obligation. It's free. This is just a public service to try to help as many people as possible get your finances straight, get your family's finances and investments on track. So you'll see that short form at Wealthion.com. And look, if you've enjoyed this episode with Joe and I, like it, subscribe, share, let other people know. This helps the algorithms send it to more people so more people can enjoy and listen and learn as well. So thank you for watching. Thank you for listening.
0: And we'll see you next time.